this is actually a pretty good week to jump in. We started last week um, going through a book of the Old Testament who um, very few people are, are, are you know, extremely familiar with. It's a book called Nehemiah, and let me tell you a little bit about why I think few people are um, are familiar with it, or most people are very unfamiliar with it. Uh, it's because, one, it's in the Old Testament, and uh, for a lot of us, we like to read the New Testament. It's like Jesus, 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 and then whatever else happens, you know, in the old stuff, it's kind of like, ah, a little bit boring, a little bit irrelevant, a little bit hard to, to, to figure out exactly what it means. Um, but part of it is the New Testament actually never refers to the book of Nehemiah, but Nehemiah, Nehemiah is an incredible book, and the reason that we said it's an incredible book is because Nehemiah is a pretty straightforward book about how to be essentially a good leader, how to accomplish the work that God has called you to do in this life. And, and the significance of that, the significance of Nehemiah is simple. It's that in the book of Nehemiah, there are no incredible miracles. There is no parting of the sea. There is no, this fire came down from heaven. There is no, you know, angels spoke and people listened. And everybody thought, oh my gosh, you know, we are so spiritual because an angel just showed up. Um, all that happens in the book of Nehemiah is a guy builds a wall, and that is a very seemingly unspiritual thing. Um, it's kind of like, you know, if you, if you came to me one afternoon and said, you know, Ben, God spoke to me, and I think that he's calling me to dig a gigantic ditch. You know, it's like, you know, blessed are you, my son. You know, I would, I would never think that. You know, I'd be like, sweet, grab a shovel. You know, if you're, you know, rich, you know, get like a bobcat and start digging that sucker. I mean, you know, go nuts, dig your ditch, do, do what you got to do. But the interesting thing about the book of Nehemiah as Nehemiah was called to build this wall, to, to give you a little bit of background, a little bit of backdrop to what had happened, there's this group of people that were God's people. They were the nation of Israel. They started off as a family, became enslaved, got delivered, traveled around in the desert for a while, eventually became this great nation. This great nation kind of lost control of itself. They split into two different nations. There was the northern and the southern. The northern got taken over by what you probably read about in your history books called the Assyrians. As the Assyrians kind of went and they did their thing, they eventually on the world market got taken over by the Babylonians. Babylonians took over, and the Babylonians came and invaded what was the most holy ground to the nation of Israel, which was modern-day Jerusalem. And to them was current-day Jerusalem. And when they did this, they had this incredible temple that this guy named Solomon had built. And again, you've probably heard of Solomon. Solomon wrote the book of Proverbs, okay? So if you are ADHD or ADD, you probably love the book of Proverbs because Solomon is just all over the place. He's like, this, 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 there's a bird. You know, he's just 1,000 miles an hour, 10 different directions. So Solomon, who has incredible wisdom, loses control of the kingdom, but in his kind of reign, builds this unbelievable temple for God. And this temple is destroyed when the Babylonians come in. The walls are broken down when the Babylonians come in. And all this happens, and that basically all the people of God are exiled all over the Babylonian empire. Well, again, on the world market, a king called Cyrus of Persia, who again, you've probably heard of the Persian king Cyrus, comes and defeats the Babylonians and sends this incredible edict out that basically says, hey, anybody who got exiled in the Babylonian exile can now go home. You who were in your particular places, in your particular pockets, who got exiled, which the Babylonians would do so people wouldn't revolt and people wouldn't riot, you can now go home. And so all of a sudden, this nation of Israel, as well as a lot of other nations, could go home and could rebuild their homeland. And so they went back and through a couple different waves, they rebuilt the temple, began to rebuild the city. But there was a problem, that they still had no walls. And while walls to us are seemingly insignificant, it's like you wouldn't say, man, my house is so incomplete because I don't have a fence, you know. Oh my gosh, woe is me because I don't have a fence. But walls for them were basically the way that they would be, have, have a first line of defense to protect themselves. And you couldn't protect yourself, you couldn't basically lock your house if you didn't have walls. In the same way, building a city without having walls to protect it, having those walls to fortify it 
was basically like getting the nicest, most expensive car you could find, putting the best stereo system in it, get your iPads and your iPods and you know, hundreds of dollars and lay it on the seat and go to, the, go to like the worst neighborhood in town, unlock your doors, roll down the windows and just leave it for a month and see what happens. You know, it's like, I can tell you what's going to happen. You may have a car, but you probably won't have hubcaps, you know, when you get back. You may have a car, but you won't have the money you left. I mean, you, it's just, you're left open and you're vulnerable. So, Nehemiah hears this news in chapter 1, verse 1 of Nehemiah. Nehemiah's heart is broken. Now, pause. This is about 90 years after Nehemiah. Now, this is about 90 years when Nehemiah hears this news after Cyrus has said everybody can go home. So, for 90 years... No one has built the wall. One, because the walls were incredibly difficult to build. And two, because oftentimes the kings didn't want people, especially in Jerusalem, to rebuild these walls because they were notorious for revolting and rebelling against whoever was the authority. And so you got this guy named Nehemiah, who, as we're going to find out at the end of today, is a cupbearer to the king. In Nehemiah chapter 1, the first couple verses, first four verses, he's got some guys that show up. And Nehemiah says, so how's Jerusalem doing? How's the remnant that's still over there? How's the people that have returned back? He said, well, the people aren't doing good because the walls are still broken down. And Nehemiah is crushed, and Nehemiah is burdened, and Nehemiah is broken for the walls of Jerusalem. And here's the significance of that. This is where many of us enter the story. Because for us, we oftentimes think about what in the world, if God would have me to do something here on planet Earth, what does God want me to do? We'll say it in a thousand different ways, depending on our level of spirituality or our spiritual lexicon. Some of you will say, you know, basically, you know, I wish God would talk to me. I wish God would, you know, send an angel down. If God wants me to do something, I wish God would just communicate it clearly. For some of us, you know, you kind of ask the question, what is God's will for my life? But here's the reality. I don't believe that Jesus came and died on the cross for us to exist in mediocrity. I don't believe that Jesus came and died on the cross and gave us the Holy Spirit so that we could exist in normalcy in life. I think that God has given each and every person in here something extraordinary to do. That might not be something huge, but there's something more than ordinary that God has given you to do. And here's the thing. For many of us, we look for an incredibly spiritual sign from God to do something. We want the angels to come down. We want God to send us a billboard. And we want, you know, I had this dream one night and Jesus spoke to me. And I was like, are you kidding me? Jesus just spoke. You know, we want God to audibly speak to me. I just want it to be known. If God ever speaks to me audibly, I do not want it to be at nighttime. I do not want it to be by myself. I do not want it to be dark in the room, you know. God, speak to me in the middle of the day when all the lights are on and there's plenty of people around. So one, I don't sound crazy. And two, so I don't like, you know, wet myself as you speak to me. Because just hearing the voice of God, that would just be, uh, that would be terrifying. Anyways, side note to the sermon so that's what we want to hear from God but how God often speaks and this is huge this is huge in fact this sets up the rest of the summer for us because the rest of the summer we're essentially going to say here's the roadmap laid out by Nehemiah to how to accomplish the thing that God has called you to do the work that God has called you to do either with your entire life or in this specific season of life and the critical part is realizing that most of our calling, in fact, I would venture as far as, as far as to say all of our callings will probably not be received supernaturally. There will probably not be an angel that says, there will probably not be a dream that happens, there probably will not be a voice that happens. But how many people throughout the scripture and throughout experience have experienced the call of God in their life 
is God breaks your heart for what he calls you to do. God burdens you for what he calls you to do. In fact, we said last week, if you're ever trying to figure out, okay, I kind of feel like I have this burden, I kind of feel like I have this, you know, brokenheartedness, here's, especially with guys, this is how we see it. What is it that when you see doing wrong or having been done wrong, or what is it when you see not been doing at all, what is it that drives you nuts? What is it that when you see drives you nuts? You're in here, you know, you're, maybe you're in the, in the financial world, you're in the banking world, something like that. And what drives you nuts is you see people over and over and over and over and over put themselves in poor financial situations. And it drives you to want to help them. Maybe that's the word that God has for you. You're in here and you're a teacher. And what drives you nuts is when you see kids over and over and over walking into your classroom. And as they walk into your classroom, you see kids who feel like and exist as if their rest of their life is already determined because of their surroundings. And it drives you nuts. And you want to change. And you want to help be an agent of change for their future. You're in the church world. This was it for me. And I saw people over and over who didn't like church, didn't like church, didn't like church, didn't like church. And you know what? My thought was not, I can't believe you don't like church. It was, if I had my entire life experienced the type of church that you experienced, I wouldn't like church either. And it drove me to start a church that I felt like people who didn't like church might perhaps like. Through the way that we talked, the way that we interacted, the way that we welcomed, and the way that the Bible was taught. And I'd see people turned off by the church by tens and hundreds and think, you know what? If only there was a church that unchurched people liked. That's our church, hopefully. And we're not there, but we strive every day for it. But here's the point, here's the point, here's the point. What is it in your life that God has burdened you for? What is it in your life that whether you even, you know, kind of acknowledge it's God or it's just something that bugs you, what is it that burdens you? What is it that passions you? What is it that keeps you up at night and you wake up in the morning thinking about it? Because you know perhaps you were made to do this particular task or job. Now, what I want to talk about is as you identify that and as you go through and unearth what that, you know, particular thing is, here's the reality. And here's why the rest of the summer is, is, is absolutely vital. Many people feel that calling. Many people feel a burden. Many, many people feel a, a passion. But very few people accomplish the burden that that, or the task that that burden calls them to. Very few people accomplish the task that that passion calls them to. Many, many people feel a burden, feel a passion, are brokenhearted about something. But very few people actually do anything about it, especially finish the work that God has for them. So for the rest of the summer, I want to help, through the book of Nehemiah, lay out what is a roadmap through the book of Nehemiah about how in the world you can do what few people do, which is to accomplish the task that God has for you. Because here, here's what we all know. All of us know one or two people who were inspired because they felt a burden and they did something about it. And we know tons of people who exist in the normalcy of life. But you know one or two people who you saw... And they saw, and they had a burden, and they had a passion, and they actually did something about it. And we're awestruck by them. We are inspired by them. When you have conversations with them, and they talk about it, it just can't. You might not do anything that they want to do, but let me just tell you, it inspires you to do something. And I think, how incredible would it be if there was an entire church of those type of people? 
How, I mean, come on. How different would people think about church if when they thought about church, they thought about people who actually accomplished the things and did the things and were inspired and were passionate to do the things that God had in fact called them to do. My, my guess is people would see church and as a result, God a lot differently. So I just think, how cool would it be if our entire church got this? 100% participation to be involved in the lives of your families, of your communities, of your workplaces, of whatever it is and wherever it is that God has called you and burdened you and given you a passion for. So today, I want to give you the first step that Nehemiah took. I want to give you the first step, and which is the, an absolutely critical step, but the very first step that Nehemiah took. So if you've got your Bible, you can open up Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1. We're going to start at verse 3, just a little recap. And they said to me, these, these are the people that visited Nehemiah. This is the news that he got. The remnant there in the province who have survived the exile are in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. And as soon as I heard this, verse 4, the words, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now pause. We read this last for last week, but this verse 4 sets up for us this week. And that is simple. That the first act for Nehemiah was not a physical act. The first act for Nehemiah was a spiritual act. The first thing that Nehemiah did when he heard these words was to fast and to pray. Was to fast and to pray. And let me just tell you why that's significant. Because for me, I am a doer. The idea of fasting and praying for a long time, honestly, sometimes seems like I'm just kind of treading myself, you know, treading in water, keeping your head up. It doesn't feel like it's very action-oriented. But what Nehemiah knew is, hey, this is an incredible task. This is something that, honestly, previous kings have put a stop to. This is a task that for 90 years, people have known someone ought to do something about it, someone ought to do something about it, someone ought to do something about it. But this is a task that if it's going to happen... I am going to have to start, not with a physical action, but with a spiritual action. Let me me just tell you why this is is so important. We're going to walk through this prayer together. Because when you pray, when you pray, you realize the work that God has called you to do, he has not called you to do. He has called himself, or he has called you to be the conduit through which he will accomplish. You see, here's the, the thing about Nehemiah. Nehemiah constantly prays. And as Nehemiah lives into and leverages into and leans into the work that God has called him to do, he is constantly in prayer. And the reason is because Nehemiah knows if there's going to be success, then it's going to be God who gives the success. And so Nehemiah begins to pray and prays and prays and begins to fast and fast, and fast, and fast. And for them, almost exclusively what fasting was, was that you would go without eating. For us, we fast in a bunch of different ways. You know, we're you know, newer and, and, and hipper and trendier. So we, like, fast from social media. It's like, man, I haven't tweeted in, like, five hours, you know. Feel this hole in my heart. You know, oh, my gosh, I haven't checked Facebook. But I see my push notifications. I have, like, 13 push notifications because I'm really cool. You know, oh, my gosh, I'm fasting right now. But for them, it was almost exclusively, exclusively going without food, oftentimes going without anything to drink besides perhaps water. And, and, and here's what, there's the natural idea or the natural question we get when we talk about fasting. It's like, so how much, 
How much, how much do I have to fast in order to do that? I mean, is it like, are we talking like a once a week thing? Are we talking like, like lunch once a week? Are we talking like a whole day? Are we talking about like a week at a time? That's just outrageous. Nobody can really do that, you know? I mean, how, how much time are we talking about fasting? I mean, here's the interesting thing. It never mentions... Because when you are brokenhearted, it isn't about getting a coin. It's not about pushing, you know, a little button and trying to get God to do what you want. You're just brokenhearted and you'd be willing to do anything. So Nehemiah starts in the season of prayer and fasting. Because if this work will be accomplished, if this work will in fact happen, it's got to be one God who does it. And as Nehemiah goes to God, it would be easy for Nehemiah as he accomplishes the work to take the credit for the work. But he pauses. He says, God, you're going to have to be the one that supplies this whole thing. Now, go through the prayer. Nehemiah does an interesting prayer. He says, O Lord of heaven, verse 5, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and steadfast love with with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ears be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray for you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. Now, what's interesting to kind of to, to start off with this, as you think about prayer, as you think about, okay, this is the thing that God's called me to, this is the, the burden that God's given me, this is the passion that God's given me, I wanted to examine what would typically be our prayer compared to what Nehemiah's prayer is. Generally speaking, in our prayer life, our prayer life goes something along the lines of, God, I hope you're listening. Help me, help me, help me, bless me, bless me, bless me. God, I hope you're listening. Help me, help me, help me, bless me, bless me. God, I got this thing going on. God, I've got this project going on. God, I've got this presentation going on. God, I've got all kinds of things happening, and you've given me a burden, and you've given me a passion. So God, if you will please help me, God, if you will please bless me. God, if you will please help me, God, if you will please bless me. And Nehemiah starts off basically saying, hey, God, I just want to pause for a second. And acknowledge how great you are. I just want to pause for a second. And acknowledge the fact that I am talking to the God of heaven and earth. I am not talking to my friend. I'm not talking to just some rando dude on the street. I am talking to God Almighty. In fact, when Jesus prays in Matthew chapter 6 and he's teaching his disciples to pray. He says, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. In other words, if you can pause long enough in your prayer life, you feel a calling, you feel a passion, you feel a burden, and you start to pray. If you can pause long enough in your prayer life to acknowledge who it is that you're praying to, let me tell you, it postures you in a way to realize that ultimately God is in control. Ultimately, God is the one with the strength and the power. And what's fascinating is Nehemiah's next step. Because for us, we would get to this point, we'd say, okay, God, you know, man, you're fantastic, incredible, big, huge, you know, humongous, you know, hip word, ginormous, you know, God, you're holy cow. And then God, Nehemiah takes the next step, which we would normally say, okay, so here's all the things that's going on. But listen to what Nehemiah says. As he continues, he says, let your ear be attentive, your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. 
confessing their sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. It's like, hold on, Nehemiah, I don't know if you know how this whole thing works. Generally, when God's called you to do something, it's not about you confessing your sins. Generally, when God's called you to do something, it's about you deciding, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go for it. I'm going to pull the trigger. God, help me, help me, help me. Bless me, bless me, bless me. Look, Nehemiah acknowledges, says, verse 7, we have acted very corruptly against you and have kept the commandments or have not kept the commandments, the statues, the rules that you have commanded your servant Moses. He says, verse 8, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. Now, here's what's fascinating about this. Nehemiah starts out, he launches into this thing, he's basically saying, God, I just want you to know, before I go into all the things I need, before I go into all the things I want, before I go into all the things that I'm going to need you to come through on, because God, this is an incredibly big task. God, I want you to know that I am unfit for the task. God, I want you to know that I realize I'm sinful. God, I want you to know that I realize I have been unfaithful. God, I want you to know that I realize that I am probably not the best person for this job because not only the nation have sinned, but I in my father's house have sinned against you. Let me tell you why this is absolutely critical. Because for most of us, we go through life especially if you're a Christian, trying to project the fact that you don't sin. And the reality is every single one of us in this room is a sinner at heart. You might cloak it with quiet times. You might cloak it with reading your Bible. You might cloak it with, you know, going out and loving and serving. Let me just tell you, at the core, we are sinners. We have a sinful flesh. In fact, this is kind of the entire thing of Christianity. It's simple. It's that every single one of us is sinful. There is no you're better than me and I'm better than you and my sin's not as bad as your sin. All of us, everyone in the room has sin. Everyone in the room has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And God didn't see that in us and say, I can't believe you. You are a terrible person. I am never talking to you again. God looked at us and said, I know. And in fact, because of that, I'm going to send my son into the world. Not not to condemn the world, as John would say, but to redeem it. And so Nehemiah stops in the middle of his prayer and acknowledges, says, God, I just want you to know that I am a sinful person, and I want you to know that in light of my sinfulness, I know that I probably don't deserve to be put in this situation. But God, you made a promise. And this was the promise that God made as he reaches back and quotes the book of Deuteronomy. He says, remember Moses saying in Deuteronomy, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the people. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them through your outcasts, or though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place where I have chosen to make my name dwell. In other words, he says, okay, God, but remember that you said That if we would return to you, you would restore us. If we would return to you, you would restore us. And this is the beautiful picture of what would become the New Testament. In fact, this is the beautiful picture of what is the entire Bible. That the people of God, that people all over the place have sinned. But God's ultimate goal is not to say, you sinner, you're horrible. God's ultimate goal is to restore a relationship with those people. 
We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory. And Nehemiah, in this prayer, just says, God, I know. I'm acknowledged. I'm not hiding it. I'm not running from it. I'm embodying. I'm owning the fact that I, in fact, have sinned. But God, I know that ultimately your goal is not to send sinners into hell. Ultimately, your goal is not to just outcast, 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 condemn, condemn, condemn. Your goal is to restore. So he says, oh, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. And to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. <laughs> and then he has this last little half a sentence. It says, and give success to your servant today. And grant him mercy on the side of this man. Now, here, here's what's interesting. To show you how incredible this prayer is. As Nehemiah just says, give me success Verses and verses and verses of God, you're great. Verses and verses of God, I've sinned. Verses and verses of God, you're going to restore. And oh yeah. God, as I'm talking to this guy today, if you could help him to listen to me, find favor with him, that'd be great. And this guy, by the way, is the king. And this guy, by the way, is the king of the Persian Empire. This guy, by the way, is the guy who could, in an instant for Nehemiah asking, have him to be killed. I can't believe you would ask me to help to restore and, by the way, pay for the walls of this particular city that has always been a rebellious city. I can't believe you would ask me that. That makes me question your judgment. You are executed because of that. But I want you to imagine, this isn't like a conversation you go to your boss and you could be fired. This is a conversation that you go to your boss and you're going to ask something that he probably has no reason, no reasonable reason to say yes to, but you're going to ask him anyways. And if he says no, it's not just that you're going to be fired, it's that you might be killed on top of being fired. And the only part of your prayer is, God, by the way, all that stuff, all that stuff, if you could help me there, that'd be great. If you could give me favor with him, that'd be great. Nehemiah's prayer is not constantly, I need, I need, I need, I need, I want, I want, I want, I want, I want. Nehemiah's prayer is simply to say, God, I'm going to acknowledge who you are. I'm going to acknowledge who I am. And I'm going to acknowledge this is your ultimate goal for restoration of the people. Oh, and by the way, if you could help me out, that would be great. Now, for us, let me just tell you, if I was going into a place where I might be killed... My first prayer, my first step was, God, if I could not die, that would be fantastic. Okay, you already know I'm a sinner. We get that, you know. Okay, we already know you're great. You get that. But okay, for real, I might die. So if you could help that to not happen, that would be just, God, I mean, you know, we start to pull like the sympathy card. God, I got a family, you know. God, I got a one-year-old daughter, you know. She, you know, she needs to know her, her daddy, you know. And, and man, we cuddle. And, you know, okay, and I have a dog, too. You know, got to provide dog food, you know. Okay, God, I know I have life insurance, but let's just you know, pretend like I don't have life insurance right now, you know. Okay, God, if you could please not let me die. But Nehemiah, in light of that, just says, God, what's more important than me acknowledging what I need is me acknowledging who you are and the fact that I'm not worthy. Because when I acknowledge the fact that I'm not worthy and you ultimately are worthy, it positions me, it postures me in a way that I understand it's only by your power and not my power. Because when God calls you to do what he's called you to do, there is always the temptation to think it's my goodness that did it. 
And as long as it's my goodness that did it, God will not get the glory for it. And ultimately, God's desire through all of this, through all of the work that he's called us to do, is that people would see him. People would understand the greatness and the glory of God, that our lives would simply point to him and us going to him and praying to him and realizing who he is and who I am and what his ultimate purpose in us positions us in a way to not steal the glory when the success begins. And Nehemiah finishes saying by saying that I was cupbearer to the king. Now, in chapter 2, verse 1, it's this last detail that I think is so incredibly significant. This is what he says. Chapter 2, verse 1. He says, In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up to him the wine, and gave it to the king. Now, that verse might not sing significant. But when Nehemiah hears the, the, the news in verse 1, when it was the month of Sislev, by the time that he goes and talks to the king, it was the month of Nisan, which I know all of us are thinking, oh my gosh, I know exactly what that means and how the Jewish calendar works. I'm so glad you brought that detail up. This was about... Four or five months while Nehemiah fasted and prayed and fasted and prayed and fasted and prayed. This is like you or me hearing May 1st, the beginning of May, that something happened and you're brokenhearted for it and you're brokenhearted for it and you're brokenhearted and you're burdened for it and you're burdened for it and you're burdened for it and you're passionate for it and you're passionate for it and you're passionate for it. And many of us, perhaps, when we heard last week, our first thought was, okay, I'm going to go start to do something about it. Okay, I know I should pray about it. So I'm spending about the next week praying about it. This is like you being burdened in passion for something and not doing something till sometime around September or October. You just spend the next four to five months doing nothing but praying, doing nothing but fasting over and over and over every single day. You go through the process of saying, God, you're great, I'm not. You're great, I'm not. You're great, I'm not. God, do this work. God, you're great, I'm not. Do this work. God, you're great, I'm not. Do this work. For four or five months. Now, let me tell you why that period of time is so, so, so critical. Because you can feel a burden or a passion for God. You can feel a burden or a passion for a work that God has for you. That simply is an acknowledgement of something and not ultimately the work that God has called you to. Here's what I mean by that. I'm gonna give you a little example. I know people who are in their undergrad who when they were about a junior, you know, senior, maybe not senior, maybe junior, sophomore, they went to a conference and they felt, oh my gosh, I feel called to be a missionary. I feel called to go overseas. I feel called to go to, you know, India. I feel called to go to Africa. I feel called to go to South America. I feel called to go wherever and be a missionary. And I know people that have spent the next year and a half praying. And after a year and a half, they felt called to be a missionary. But not to be a missionary in some foreign country, but to be a missionary in the marketplace here in the States. I know people that have, called, that have, that have felt that call, and over the next year and a half, they've prayed and they've prayed and they've prayed and they've prayed and they've prayed. And at the end of their prayer, you know what happened? Some of them... The burden dissipates, and some of them, the burden grows. 
But God always uses a season of prayer and fasting to either diminish the desire or to just increase, 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 increase the fire, the burden, the passion that God has called you and I to do. In fact, almost every time in the Bible you see people doing something significant for God, it's pre-loaded with someone spending time in prayer. You take, or, or just this season of, of preparation, you take Moses who would ultimately deliver the nation of Israel, who would set them up for this, this particular instance years and years down the road. Before he led the whole nation out, before he stuck the thing in you know, the lake and the whole thing went sideways, and we thought, holy cow, how in the world that happened? Before that happened, he spent 40 years in the desert walking around, doing nothing, when God was preparing him. Jesus, before he even started his ministry, Spent days and nights in the desert praying and fasting. In fact, almost everybody, when Jesus died, before he came back, there was a period. Before the Holy Spirit came down, there was a period where he would return and return and return and return. And then he would say, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit, but first, I want you to wait. Let me tell you the, what I believe is the number one reason why Christians don't accomplish the work of God that God has called them to in their life. It's they act too soon. And we run in guns blazing, half-loaded, to try a work that we can never pull off ourselves. God uses this season of prayer. In fact, here's, here's the interesting thing about Nehemiah. The entire wall to rebuild, you know how long it took? 52 days. Which meant Nehemiah spent over twice as much time praying about the work than the actual work would take. Nehemiah spent over four months praying about the work that would take less than two months to accomplish. Because Nehemiah knew that God had called him to do something. And if he was going to accomplish the thing and the work that God had called him to in the first place, he knew that ultimately it would have to be a work of God by the will of God, and that was going to take fasting and prayer. So let me kind of draw the whole thing to a conclusion by saying this. What is it that God has called you to? What's it that God's given you a burden for? What is it that God's given you a passion for? What is it that keeps you up at night? What is it that just, I mean, you wake up thinking about it. What is this thing that just burns so deeply inside of you that you just can't stop? You just can't quit. And would you be spent, Wyndon? Would you be willing to spend the next several months, the next several weeks, simply praying, asking, and seeking and acknowledging who God is and who I am in light of him. Because eventually, what we're going to talk about next week is your burden will require boldness. But if you first haven't gone to God over and over in prayer, you will speak boldly in your own strength and your own power, not in an acknowledgement that you have no strength and you have no power, and ultimately it's up to God to do. Let me just kind of end by saying this. 
Wouldn't this be incredible? Wouldn't this be incredible if the people of God lived into the work that God had called them to? Wouldn't it be incredible if churches were filled with people who didn't simply go and show up on Sunday and say, that's great, pastor, you know, good job, we'll see you later. Wouldn't it be great if people didn't just show up week after week on Sunday and just say, okay, okay, cool, okay, cool, okay, cool, I'm a Christian. What, what would it be like? What would it be like? What would it look like? How inspiring would it be if Christians actually understood the call of God on their life, lived into the call of God in their life, but didn't live into the call of God in the sense of their own power and their own holiness, but every interaction was cloaked with the realization that I am a sinful person, and it's only by the grace of God that I have the strength and the power to do what I've called to do. There would be so much less, ju- less judgment, there would be so much less hypocrisy, and the entire world would see Christians follow through with their faith, and perhaps people People who had no idea or had no real concern or no real interest with God would be interested and would be concerned because they saw Christians actually living like Christians. So let me just ask you, what has God called you to? What has God called you to do? What's the work that God's called you to? And are you willing to go through a season of prayer in a season of fasting, maybe a week, maybe a month, maybe six months, maybe five years, who knows? For Moses, it was 40 years. Let's hope it doesn't take that long. But would you be willing? Because God's broken your heart. And you realize that ultimately, you can't accomplish this on your own. 